It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. David Price once said, Honest discussions, even and perhaps especially on topics about which we disagree, can help us resist hypocrisy and arrogance. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary, as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, uh, talk to us anytime with your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. Dig deeper after this episode by downloading our comprehensive CQ Rewind show notes. It's a visual and contextual map for everything that we cover. That's on our website and in our weekly newsletter. Plus, check out our YouTube channel. We put out cool content for all age groups with new videos every week, all available at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, subject matter for today. Contradictions, part six. Do the accounts of Jesus' life contradict themselves? Our theme text is found in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Okay, contradictions, part six. Today, it's about the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus as man on earth was filled with wonder, teaching, and miracles. His obedience to his Father's will was the centerpiece of his mission as he came to pay the ransom price for Adam. Critics would say that Jesus' earthly life was also filled with contradictions. They say that these discrepancies are reasonable cause to doubt the validity of what he did, taught, and stood for. They also point to these inconsistencies as proof that the Bible is not the unerring Word of God. Once again, we look at the scriptures that the critics bring up and examine them. So, coming up in today's podcast, Jesus' life was controversial. Some say that we can't even agree on when he began to preach. Did he start before or after John the Baptist was put in prison? In segment two, we bring clarity to this. It's a common belief that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days after his baptism. That is, unless you read the Gospel of John, which seems to say that he was at a wedding three days later. So who's right? In segment three, we plainly answer, and the conclusion is simple. Is it nitpicking to observe that the order of the temptations Jesus had from Satan don't match? Our fourth segment settles this confusion with surprising ease. And finally, what's up with the calling of Peter to be an apostle? There are three totally different stories. In segment five, we examine those totally different stories and explain how they're all true. But first, was Jesus given the wrong name? An Isaiah prophecy seems to say so. Rick, our objective is simple. Find out what these several situations actually mean in the light of context, history, and common sense. Okay. So with us again, whenever we do contradictions, we bring in our contradiction extraordinaire expert, Julie. Hey, Julie, how are you? Hello, Rick and Jonathan. I'm doing well. I'm not sure if I like to be the contradiction extraordinaire. It sounds a little (laughs) negative, but uh, there is a lot out there. And I want to make sure that you're aware of what people are faced with. Christians every day are bombarded with all kinds of negativity, and we need to know how 
we should be answering these questions. All right. And Julie, just really quickly, just because you're not on with us every single week, although you have been recently, just a little bit for our listeners, who are you? What's your, what's your role here at Christian Questions? Well, I'm one of the volunteers at Christian Questions. We're all a volunteer army. And uh, mainly I work on uh, updating the website and work on the CQ Rewind show notes. And this is a great episode to get those show notes. Uh, Everything is written out that we are going to discuss. Every scripture is going to be here. So if you start getting a little confused trying to picture it all, uh, it'll all be written out. And it's usually available within uh, a week after the podcast. You can sign up for it at ChristianQuestions.com and we'll send you a rewind hot off the press. Excellent. Well, Julie, let's review the contradictions principles from our previous three episodes. The first was deduce when flashback is being used as a literary device. Yes. Well, this was one of the things that, you know, these contradiction principles, we want to make sure that people can keep in mind things that they can use to try to figure out on their own why certain things don't seem to make sense. So sometimes flashback is used. When things seem out of order, it might just be that the scriptures are going back to fill in more details for us. Next, purpose. God uses various tools to accomplish his plan. And one of the things we learned on one of our contradiction episodes was he even uses things like confusion and darkness as, as tools. Next, distinguish between temporary emotion and eternal purpose. And our temporary experiences can look pretty sad sometimes, but we have to understand there's a bigger picture of God's ultimate compassion and mercy. And so we need to learn what that bigger picture is and see how everything lines up underneath it. Another, always seek the larger context beyond any single account. Remember, various perspectives enhance true understanding. You know, no two eyewitnesses report the same thing. And so differing perspectives of the same event show honesty in reporting and actually lends credibility to the account. Our next contradiction principle, don't read what is not there. Do read what is there. All right, we don't want to read into things, but we also can't omit what is there due to a preconceived conclusion. And this seems obvious, but it was really helpful when we analyzed uh, last week, putting it in order, the creative days in episode 1090. So don't read what's there, do read what is there. And finally, when two related accounts seem incomprehensively contradictory, find the connections, details, and differences that reveal the harmony. Well, because we might be being shown two or more different aspects of the same thing. So we need to pick out what the what it has in common, what it has in different, go back to the original Greek and Hebrew words, take a look and see what parts of it are harmonious. Man, you guys are awesome. You're hired. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, you know, the, the thing about it is we want to put things in order according to scripture. That's the whole objective of doing this. And folks, you know, if you're listening and you've heard a lot of the contradictions and some that we're going to go over today, don't let them derail you look to the scriptures, look deeply to see how the scriptures actually do work together. We're going to walk through uh, five different contradictions tonight, uh, or supposed contradictions. So, Jonathan, why don't you get us started? Sure. Let's get right to the first question. Why was Jesus named Jesus instead of Emmanuel? And in Matthew one twenty three says, 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. But just two verses later in Matthew 1.25, it says, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So how do we explain the difference? <laughs> and, you know, it seems pretty weird. She shall call his name Emmanuel, and like you said, in just two verses, but they named him Jesus. Why would you do that? What is the sense of that? And on the surface, you look at that and say, that is really odd. So, Jonathan, before we get into that, it says, shall call his name. And he uses that phrase, call his name, in both cases. The word call, what does that actually mean? It means uh, properly allowed, but used in a variety of applications, to be called, that is, to bear a name or title among men. Okay, and that's important. That last part was from the Greek-English lexicon, to bear a name or title among men. I want to remember that. When it says, call his name, what does the word name mean? It means a name, literally or figuratively, authority, character. A name, literally or figuratively. Let's remember those pieces as we now go through and, and look at this. How is it that Jesus was named Jesus when it says it's to fulfill a scripture that says his name will be Emmanuel? Let's go back to that original scripture. Ahaz was king of Judah, and he was with the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 12 to 14. And this is where that prophecy originates. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will be called and call his name Emmanuel. And so Matthew says that this happening in Isaiah chapter 7, specifically in verse 14, was pointing to the birth of Jesus. This is not something that anybody else is, is saying. Matthew's saying it. So we're taking that as, okay, this is God showing us that there was this prophecy of the virgin birth. So, the, but it says the name is Emmanuel. How do we deal with that? So let's look at the context of the New Testament application here. Let's go back uh, into that Matthew chapter 1, and Jonathan, you already read verse 23 for us, uh, but let's go back a few more verses. This is in the dream given to Joseph be, once he finds out Mary's pregnant, and he's like, what do I do with this? Uh, verses 21 to 23, this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you will be called his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now at this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. So it's interesting because the angel of the Lord says you will call his name Jesus. So this comes from an angel. It comes from pretty high up. And yet you have Matthew saying this is to fulfill this prophecy that his name shall be called Emmanuel. So how do we deal with this? Julie, well, give us a, a, a new contradiction principle for this particular situation. Well, we want to allow ancient words to have various shades of meaning the way we presently allow such variety in our word usage. And I can give you an example if you'd like. Absolutely. 
because this question has driven me crazy for many years. And um, it, it, it just drove me crazy that it predicted that it would be a manual and yet no one calls him that. Right. And um, what I've learned is by looking, like you said, with this online Greek English lexicon and what the word actually means is it's not only named, it's also a title. It's a descriptor. You know, in this case, it means God with us, which it means Jesus is God's representative. You know, if you look at John 14, 9, Jesus said, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. And what that means is that the father's love and mercy and justice and wisdom were all manifest in the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus. So anyone who was acquainted with Jesus would be acquainted with the father. You know, he never claimed to be the heavenly father personally, but he was always, he always taught he was the son of God. So it's almost like, um, you know, if, if I'm out and I am representing my company, you know, that I work for, if you've seen me, you've seen the principles of my company, I'm their representative. So that makes more sense. God with us is Jesus as the representative is what we see. Okay, you know, and it's interesting in John chapter 1, it says, you know, in the beginning was the Word. You know, the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. And that gives us this sense of being that clear-cut, undeniable representative. So we're looking at name as a title. Now, somebody listening can say, well, you know, you're kind of stretching it. Well, hang on. Let's take a look at a few examples. Uh, name, uh, examples in scriptures, name not being a formal name, but actually a description. We'll give you three different scriptural examples. Jonathan, let's go to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. This is an example of a name being a description, just like Julie was saying. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, prince of peace there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will accomplish this so here nobody's ever called jesus wonderful counselor mighty god eternal follower prince of peace you know it says but it says his name will be called what it's saying is this is what he is Okay, that's what we get when we understand name in Scripture. Now, we don't often do that today, but in Scripture, it's very common. Mark chapter 3, verse 17 is a great example of this. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder. So did Jesus actually change the name of James and John to both Bonerges? No. But... (laughs) But it is a description. It's describing them. Jesus himself says, these two brothers, they're the sons of thunder. He's describing them, and maybe in their, in their passion and their capacity for God and his word. In their impact, in right. their walk. Absolutely. Okay, so Jesus himself tells us that giving someone a name is, is, is really showing what they're about. Mark chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, another example. For he had been saying to them, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. So again, this unclean spirit's name personally wasn't Legion, but it says my name is Legion because there are many of us involved in this possession. 
So you can see that name does mean title, does mean what something or somebody is about. It's much more than just a label that says this is your name. And in scripture, go ahead, Julie. This this scripture to me is like, I think one of the scariest in the whole Bible, because here you've got this evil spirit that's so powerful that there are so many, there's so much evil that's all, you know, multiplied. And I, I, I see it as a movie, <laughs> you know, you almost see it as where this evil thing is saying, what's your name? My name is your worst nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, and then yeah. it's not his real name, but that's, 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 that's what he represents is your worst nightmare. Absolutely. So, and that's a great example. My name is your worst nightmare. So, so un- let, let the word mean what it means. And in Scripture, we have great examples of that. Finally, let's look at, at Mary and her visit by the angel, as Jesus described in a very, very much a God with us, because that's the, the, what Emmanuel means, kind of way. Jonathan, let's go to Luke one thirty-one to 35. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Judah forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Holy Child will be called the Son of God. He will be named Jesus. We can see you've got descriptions. So let's let it be as it is. So Jonathan, once again, Julie, you had one other quick thought? Yeah, I just wanted to add, and we'll put this in rewind, uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6 was a prophecy of Jesus also. And it said, and his name will be called the Lord, is, the Lord our righteousness. But, you know, that was never something that anyone called Jesus, but that's what he was. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he was called the last Adam because he provided satisfaction for original sin. So he has a lot of these titles, just like I'm called auntie from my nieces and nephews or smunchy from my husband, or sometimes Rick, you'll refer to me as your right-hand man if I'm helping you on a project, but my birth certificate doesn't say my right-hand man. Yeah. But well, it's, it's a description. Yeah, I actually call you my right arm. I don't call you... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's on my birth <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but that's the point. So, so jo- uh, Jonathan, let's wrap this up. The question one more time. Rick, why was Jesus named Jesus instead of Emmanuel? And the answer, Jesus was his formal name, and Emmanuel was one of several titles that unmistakably described him as God's clear representative. So, in our efforts, to be precise, we can easily overlook the point. When we do that, we completely miss the lesson. With Jesus' name and mission in order, did he start his ministry before or after John the Baptist finished his? We've been studying scripture and discussing how biblical history collides with world history in today's culture for 20 years on radio and in podcast channels. If you're curious about how the Bible or Christianity applies to what you have faced and are facing right now in your life, you're tuned into the right podcast. Listen live or on your own time, then reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. 
To many of us, this question of Jesus beginning his ministry may seem a bit foolish as we figure it all began after his 40-day fasting, praying, and temptation experience. However, the critics claim to have found a point of contention. So, spiritual integrity requires that we conscientiously examine it. Even though to us it seems very straightforward, we need to take a close look. So our next question, did Jesus begin to preach before or after John the Baptist was imprisoned? It's described before in John chapter 3, 22 through 24. And after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because they were, there was much water there, and they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. But in Mark, it's after, in Mark 1, 13 and 14. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Now after that, John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So, Rick and Julie, which is it, before or after? Okay, you know this one I think is really actually very simple. Um, so, Julie, let's let's introduce the contradiction principle here. That's important, and this is one that we've already used, and then we'll get into the details of, of putting the answer together. So, we always want to seek the larger context beyond any single account. And remember, various perspectives enhance true understanding. Okay, so really what we're saying is we need to pay close attention to multiple accounts because that's the way the inspired word of God works. It works through many accounts from different perspectives all being put together. And I just want to make a note, you know, sometimes some of these, air quote, contradictions kind of seem like the critics are nitpicking. Because you're going to find that as you study these out, some of these are really simple answers. And, and you know, it's not going to take, you know, that much time to figure out. But so, so pay attention to that. We don't want anything to kind of throw you off your game. Sometimes there's a really easy answer. Right. And, and you know, Jonathan read those scriptures. They, on the surface, they do seem to contradict each other, you know, because it says after that, John was put in prison. And so it's like right away, you've got this thing happening. So let's take a look. The answer here is really simple. Jesus preached for many months before John was put in prison. So the, the answer is he started long before John was put in prison. Rereading the Mark verses that Jonathan just read us from different translations reveal the false conclusion, not the false words, but conclusion regarding the word that. Because in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now after that, John was put in prison. And if you read it exactly the way I just read it, it's, it really sounds like it's referring to the verse before. It's not. So, Jonathan, let's go to Mark 1, 13 and 14 from the New American Standard Bible. And we chose that one. That's the one we typically use. But many, many, many translations bear this out. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. So... The angel, he's, it's talking about the, the wilderness experience, the 40 days, and then verse 14 begins a new narrative. Months have gone by between verse 13 and verse 14. 
Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. See, now these verses, if we understand that there's space and time between verse 13 and 14, Mark's not interested in every single little detail. He's going from, he was in the wilderness 40 days, and then after, later on, after John had been taken in custody, Jesus came into Galilee and preached the gospel. So these verses do agree with everything else. We've got plenty more on this in the bonus material, but at this point, let's go through the Gospel of John, okay? Just touch on several verses because it fills in needed details from the months after Jesus' temptation experience and before John was taken to prison. There are many months in between, many months in between, okay? John chapter 1, verse 19 is really key. It's likely within a few months of Jesus' 40-day wilderness experience, which was right after he was baptized. So, Jonathan, John 1, 19 and 20. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? (laughs) So, this is John looking... Now, folks, pay close attention. John looking back on a previous experience. He being interrogated for the, the, the sake of the priests and the Levites. And these individuals come to him and say, who are you? So John gives them an honest testimony about his experience, about himself, and about Jesus. So we're going to skip down to John chapter 1, skip down from verse 20, go down to verse 32, and then verses 35 to 37. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Again the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, this is a really important point. In in that verse 35, it says, Again the next day. Well, the next day after what? The next day after John's testimony to these individuals about what had previously happened. So John in verse 32 says, I've seen the Spirit of God descending like a dove out of heaven. It wasn't yesterday. It was way back when I baptized Jesus. The next day after John speaks of the experience, he's standing with his disciples, and he meets Andrew first, and then he meets Peter. Now we'll go to John chapter 1, verse 43. The next day he, Jesus, proposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. So the day after that, he goes into Galilee, he finds Philip, and and there's a follow me, there's an invitation there. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. The third day after what? After the testimony that he gave to the representatives of the priests and the Levites. It's not the third day after his baptism. And I'm getting detailed here because we're going to need to repeat this in the next segment for the next proposed contradiction. Let's go now John chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We've gone through those three very specific days. 11 and 12 tell us what? This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifest himself self and glory and his disciples believed in him after this he went down to capernaum he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days so now you see that uh he did these signs in cana of galilee so he was in galilee and now he goes to a different location he goes to capernaum and and look you know in the bible we have events that sometimes they're, they're the next sentence and it thinks like okay well he went right next door 
Well, no, you've got miles and miles and miles to walk. You know, you're talking days and sometimes weeks in between these things. So there's a time gap here. We don't know how long Jesus stayed in Galilee or how soon before the Passover uh, he went to Jerusalem. We don't know how long he stayed in Capernaum. But we know because John chapter 1 and chapter 2 are telling us these are the things that happened in between. So we've got this time gap. Now we go to John chapter 2, verse 13. Okay, Julie, go ahead. Um, well, this kind of reminds me of last week when we talked about the contradictions of Genesis. You know, you have you have the creative days, and they take several years, but it takes one page in your Bible, you yeah. know, to go through all of creation. So I think what, if I was going to rephrase what you've said, we start with Mark 1, 13 and 14, and it says, after Jesus has the wilderness experience, and then John's put in prison, and then he starts preaching. But between 13 and 14, it all kind of runs together. John 1 tells us that we need to pull 13 and 14 apart and look at all that happened in between. Right. So Mark's just kind of glossing over the whole beginning of Jesus's ministry. Exactly. And see, that's critically important. And, you know, folks, if you notice, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Mark is not interested in a lot of the details. He really does hit on a lot of very important high points. Okay, so by definition, the inspired word of God. We've got this inspired word of God, and you're saying, well, how come, how come Mark didn't report everything exactly the way it was? Because he wasn't interested in that. That wasn't his mission. Matthew had a different approach to the gospel. Luke had a different approach. Mark and then John. And you see the gospel from four different perspectives for four different reasons. So we need to be able to put them all together. But you're right, Julie. John chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, actually, all fit in between Mark chapter 1, verse 13, and Mark chapter 1, verse 14. So it's important to be able to see it that way. So Jonathan, thanks, Julie, for that. Jonathan, uh, go to uh, John two thirteen. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So now we know he's going to Jerusalem uh, because Passover is coming. Go to John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. So he meets Nicodemus in the middle of all this, as well as all these other things. Go to John 3. We're going to jump down to verses 23 and 24. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. So we go through all these events, and we still see John's not in prison. Now go to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. And there you have the connection. And now Jesus goes back into Galilee and Jameson Fawcett and Brown says departed into Galilee, by which time John had been cast into prison, as in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. So we can see this is a classic example of you take two things that on the surface don't look like they agree, but you just have to understand the timing of things and drop the details in where they belong. And fortunately, the Gospels give us the hints as to where to drop things in. So it really does make quite a bit of sense. Well, Rick, back to our question. Did Jesus begin to preach before or after John the Baptist was imprisoned? And the, the, this particular question reveals the necessity of realizing how the scriptures were written. 
Also, in many other cases, the strict chronology of events is not always the same of the same importance as what happened and why. So the answer is John uh, Jesus did preach long before months and months and months before John was put into prison. It's a very simple, straightforward answer if you are willing to take the time and look at the Gospels and find the harmony. There's no twisting of words or anything like that. It's just putting things in order and understanding how things are to be read. Any any other quick comments before we wrap this one up? Okay, so if... if <laughs> I'm not sure. If not, let's, uh, let, let's move forward. Sometimes our obsession with details can cloud our simple and logical judgment. we got to watch out for this. Our next conflict is regarding Jesus' time in the wilderness after his baptism. How long was he there? As we keep this podcast conversation going, this very brief break allows us to tell you more about one of your hosts, Rick. Aside from being a student of the Bible for nearly 50 years, did you know he only drinks decaf coffee? Can you imagine if that detailed, passionate about extensive research in the Bible mind added caffeine to the equation? Jonathan would probably never get a word in. So thank you, Rick, for staying away from caffeine. As a listener, you never have to worry about making your voice heard. We love to answer your questions and respond to your comments at ChristianQuestions.com and all our social media channels. Let's throw it back to Rick and Jonathan. The obvious answer is simple. Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days to fast, pray, and be tested by Satan. With this being obvious, at least to us, we do need to address the critics' conclusions that say the Gospels are divided on this. So let's again look carefully and see what we find. So again, the question, uh, we've got to put things into order with how the Gospels read in conjunction with, with one another. Well, Rick, we, we can't pass over this non-caffeinated thing yet. <laughs> okay. Because you are naturally caffeinated. So don't add caffeine to your natural caffeination or we would have oh, chaos. <laughs> won't be able to keep up. Just will not be able to keep yeah, up. Yeah, you know, uh, I used to drink coffee and it didn't end well. So <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just leave it at that, okay? And I'm sure your wife made sure you understood that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right. I know this question seems silly, but we've got to ask it. So here we go. Did Jesus really spend 40 days in the wilderness? All right. Yes, as far as Matthew's concerned, Matthew 4.1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after that, he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He then became hungry. And Mark agrees. Yes, he says in Mark 1.12 and 13. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And yes, Luke agrees, Luke 4, 1 through 13. But let's just do one and two. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. No, (laughs) by John. John, why? (laughs) Well... Um, let's look at it because he's saying, no, he was in Galilee three days later in John 1, 32 and 33. 
John the Baptist testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And John confirms another no in John 1.43. The next day, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. And if that's not enough, another no from John, John 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So was John right or the other three gospel writers? So the contradiction here is immediately following his baptism, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness resisting the devil. But John says one day after his baptism, he was in Galilee, not in the wilderness. And three days later, he was at a wedding in Cana. So where was Jesus after he was baptized? And Rick, I I think we answered this question in the previous segment. Yes, we did. And, you know, it's it ends up bordering on, okay. Let's be clear on just reading what the scriptures say. So, Julie, let's go through a contradiction principle. We already talked about it once, but what's the principle we need to apply here and now? So the principle is always seek the larger context behind any single account and remember that various perspectives enhance true understanding. And I'm dying to answer the question because I get it now. Okay. You go okay. ahead. You can answer. Go ahead. Remember, this is this isn't John saying, "Oh, and Jesus was baptized, and the next day he went into Galilee." This was this was John re- recalling that event. So it's almost like John went back and says, "Look, this was the one I was telling you about. You know, back when I baptized him, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and resting on him." So it, it's, the, it's the memory of it. Exactly. And that is what is specifically told to us. And folks, look, again, you're a Christian and you come up across these individuals who say, well, the Bible contradicts itself a thousand times. And they throw these things out at you. And a lot of times they take you by surprise. And you're like, huh, never thought of that. And then we begin to have the doubt in our mind. Maybe they're right. And when they say, well, you know, in one account it says, well, Jesus was at a wedding three days after his baptism, but everybody else says he was in the wilderness for 40 days. He couldn't be both places. The Bible contradicts itself. And you say to yourself, wow, I wonder if they're right. Don't let the contradiction, don't let the attitude, don't let the, the, the strength of the, the accusation throw you off. Let the scriptures define themselves for you. And when we go back, and and Jonathan, we're going to do it again here, John chapter 1, we spent a lot of time on this, verses 19 and 20, clearly tells us the context of where Jesus, or, or when John was doing this speaking and what happened afterwards. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Okay, so Jonathan, go ahead, you had... Yeah, I I had something I wanted to ask. So how did they ask this question to John? Did they ask it, who are you? Or did they ask, who are you? Or did they ask, 
who are you? <laughs> I was just wondering if you knew that answer. I don't know the answer, but my guess, my educated guess is it's who are you? You know, because they had these thoughts. Are you, people say that you're Elijah. People you say you're the anointed one. Who are you? And, and so I think that John, what he was doing in answering, and I'm glad you, you brought that up that way, because what John does is he puts it in perspective, and he basically says, I'm the one who was sent because of him. He's the one you need to be paying attention to. And we get that by John, his answer in verses, and we already read these in the last segment, but John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. John testifying, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Julie, did you want to? Yeah, you know, you know what I what I'm seeing in this is really you. You have to give John credit for his humility. Yeah. You know, he had already had a lot of followers, and he was a very important person. And but what did he do? The minute Jesus comes on the scene, he says, "Hey, this is who I've been talking about all this time." And he took the spotlight and he whoosh shines it right on Jesus, you know, instead of himself. And so, you know, when I went back and I read the first chapter of John, starting around verse 29, it's like John sees Jesus and tells the crowd, you know, look, spotlight, here's the one I was telling you about. Back when I baptized him, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove and resting on him. And the next day after that, after he says this, Jesus starts gathering his disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel. So in other words, the next day after John told the people this, not the next day after the actual baptizing exactly. event occurred. Exactly. So it goes baptism, wilderness, spotlight. And the other thing that we need to realize, and, and on John, uh, Jonathan, just go to John chapter 2, verse 13. I want to fill in a couple of other quick gaps before we close this out. Sure. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we've got John chapter 1 and bringing us into John chapter 2. When you think about it, we know that Jesus was born in, in the fall, okay? And we know he would have been baptized once he turned 30 years old in the fall. We don't know if he got baptized on his 30th birthday or not. It's not necessarily material. What we do know is he's baptized in the fall on or shortly after his 30th birthday. So we also know that the Passover is in the spring, six months later. So John chapter 1 and chapter 2 are covering a six-month period of time. And so we've got this long period of time in between, and it proves to us that this was not out of order because John supplies the details. He supplies the context. Um, you know, so I have just a quick example. So if you if you were to ask my parents, where's Julie? And my mom says, oh, she went to the store. And my dad says, oh, she went to lunch. And I actually went to lunch at the food court at the mall. They were both right. And both testimonies would be reliable. They were just different descriptions of the exact same event. And I think that's what you're telling us is with these gospel writers, we have to take them all, all of their individual testimonies and fill in all the blanks. And they absolutely harmonize. Absolutely. Very, very clearly, very simply. So Jesus did spend 40 days in the wilderness 
unequivocally, that's just the way it worked. So, look, let's be sure we don't create issues where they simply do not exist. The Bible is profoundly harmonious. Our next issue seems suspicious. What do we do with the order of Jesus' three wilderness tests? As we try to stay on track with research, sometimes you go down unexpected roads. That's part of education, debates, and differing opinions. You just can't take everyone at their word, and oftentimes you have to consider the other side of the story. That's why we're always asking our listeners to give their opinions on the questions we're answering. Message us at ChristianQuestions.com or through the Christian Questions app. Speaking of the other side, time to go in reverse with a CQ contradiction. We're now going to look at what some call a contradiction that actually has legs to stand on. We're going to look at two gospel accounts of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. What we will see is the reporting is actually different. This is not a translation or subtlety issue. The accounts actually do show a different order. So you got to say, what do you do? So let's focus on the question, which temptation happened first, the mountaintop or the pinnacle of the temple experience? Now, Rick, both accounts agree that turning stones to bread are what was the first temptation, but the, the real question is what came next? So in Matthew 4 or 5, the pinnacle of the temple, cast yourself down, came next. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. But in Luke chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, the mountaintop worship, worship Satan came next. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in the moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it had been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. So, Rick and Julie, how about a thought question before answering? How much does the answer to this really matter? You know, and that, I think that's an important question just to put out there before we get to the main question. Is it going to matter which one of those two things came first? Honestly and truly, does it really, really matter? Um, are we getting into a nitpicking situation by saying, well, you know, it should have been this way or it should have been that way? Bottom line is, I think that the order is not nearly as important as what happened. Fortunately, in this case, we do have a very clear answer uh, as to what, ha what how things happened in, in, in the order that they happened. And I believe it's really, really simple. But, you know, does it really matter? You know, is it, is it going to change the gospel by having one in front of the other? I don't think so. Julie? Well, I just, I also wanted to put in a little commercial, um, if, you know, if your parents are out there or aunts and uncles or Bible class teachers wondering, how do I explain all this to our children? Uh, we have a CQ Kids video series that you can go to ChristianQuestions.com and uh, go ahead and click on our videos and you'll see them all there. Or you can go to our YouTube channel, which is ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. And there is a video called, Did Jesus Ever Do Anything Wrong? And that takes us through these three temptations in the wilderness. And I also wanted to say that back in our other questions, we've got a, a new video that's coming out this week called, What Are Some Other Names for Jesus? And so you can get your kids actively involved with the same lesson that you're going through every week 
and, and get their minds revved up for this as well. All right, CQ Kids. The videos are awesome. They're short, they're sweet, they're to the point, and you learn something. So let's go again, Julie, to another, uh, well, one of the contradiction principles we already talked about. What, what is it that we're going to apply as we answer this question? Okay, so with the order of these three temptations being different in one place versus another, our principle is the same one you've heard before. Don't read what's not there and do read what is there. Simple. So the answer here is while the order really isn't as significant as the content of the experience, we do believe that the Matthew account intentionally has things in sequence while Luke is simply reporting events. Okay, so now before we get into this, go ahead, Julie. Well, how do you know that it is the Matthew account that's correct? You've got two different orders. Yes. Why did you pick Matthew? Well, I didn't pick Matthew. Matthew told us. Okay. Okay, that, that's how we're going to get into this. But again, I want to make another point, and, and forgive me if this is a broken record, but this is the inspired word of God. And so many times we picture the inspired word of God as having to be um, antiseptically perfect. In other words, there's no, no variation on anything. And in our minds, we think it was the inspired word of God. First of all, it would be clear, it would be understandable, and everything would agree on every single point, and everybody would report the same things exactly the same. And the answer is no, that's not how God's inspiration works. God's inspiration worked through humanity, through sinful humanity. God reported the mistakes, the failures, the sins, the shortcomings, the defeats. God also allowed, like Julie said earlier, us to see things through the eyes of imperfect people to get different perspectives. In this reporting of the wilderness experience, there are two clearly different perspectives. Same exact experience, and they do not contradict each other, even though the order is not the same. It's like, okay, how do you get out of that one? Well, the answer is, you look at the scriptures carefully and clearly. Let's observe Luke's introductions to each temptation next to Matthew's introductions to each temptation, because there are marked differences in the way they approach the subject. So, Julie, how do we know Matthew? Because you'll see here, Matthew tells us. So, the stones to bread, they both agree that this is the first temptation. Listen to how Luke introduces it. Jonathan, Luke 4, 3. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. See, it's a very general and statement. And the devil said to him, this is not dealing with any kind of timing. It's just saying, and by the way, the devil said to him this. In Matthew, he introduces it differently. Matthew 4, 3. Go ahead. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. You notice it says the, the tempter came, which means to approach. So Matthew's telling us that with this stones becoming bread temptation, Satan is approaching Jesus. See, Matthew's purposely putting a time stamp into the experience. It's the beginning. He said the tempter came. So now let's go to what we believe is the second temptation. That's the pinnacle of the temple experience. Listen, now Luke lists it third, but listen to how Luke describes it. Luke 4, verse 9. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. So it just simply says, And he led him to Jerusalem. 
It doesn't give you any sense of order. It just says, and he led him to Jerusalem. Just like uh, Luke introduced the, the bread part saying the devil said to him. So it's generic event reporting, no timestamp, no indication of when or in order. Matthew, though, says it differently. Matthew 4, verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. So he's very specific. The word then means at that time. So you have in Matthew, the tempter comes and, 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 and tempts Jesus, you know, turn, turn this stone into bread. And then it says then. So you got the sense of after one comes the next. So the reporting here is very specific regarding the sequence following the first temptation. Let's go to the mountaintop experience, which is the third temptation. Luke, again, is very generic. Luke chapter 4, verse 5. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. No regard for sequence. But Matthew, <laughs> Matthew is amazingly clear on sequence. Matthew 4, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Again, meaning once more. So you following what had already followed, okay? So you had something happen, then you had then, and now you have again. So Julie, you see the difference in the reporting. I do, and I think that it, this is very, very important for our listeners to take a look at the CQ Rewind show notes on this because what we're going to do is line all these up so that you'll be able to see them and you'll see the comparison as they move forward. So it's very clear that Matthew is paying close attention to timing, and Luke doesn't care. He's not concerned about the timing. He's concerned about what happens. And to wrap this up, let's go a little bit further in the account. To finish the reasoning, here's how the exchange ends, first in Luke and then in Matthew. Luke 4.13. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. So when he had finished every temptation, well, which one came first? Well, when he finished every one. See, Luke is not giving you a sense of clarity of first, second, and third. He's just saying these are the things that happened. He's not, he's not taking his time to put them into order, okay? He, uh, he's focused on reporting the, 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 the temptations themselves because they are much more important. Matthew, however, Matthew makes it abundantly clear that the mountaintop experience was the last one, by the way, he reports it. Matthew 4, verses 9 to 11. So we're dropping in on the middle of this mountaintop uh, temptation and the conversation. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. So... In this mountaintop temptation experience, Jesus dismisses Satan. So if he dismisses him, you know that that's the last experience. Remember, in the first experience, it says the temper, tempter approached him. And now Jesus says, go, Satan. And verse 11 says, then the devil left him. So we have unequivocal timing in Matthew. The stones to bread, the pinnacle of the temple, and the mountaintop. Luke lists them in a different order, but Luke isn't trying to put them in order.
So it's a very simple thing. So Julie, when you look at that now, the, the whole experience, just what, what's your, your reaction to just looking at the scriptures and the explanation? Well, that makes sense because again, if you hadn't lined them up to see that, I don't, I think you would miss that and it might look like a contradiction. Um, but it's almost like if I'm going to list out something, I'm going to get, I'm going to get milk, bread and cheese and you know, but the, but the recipe called for something in a specific order. It's just the intent. I'd need a specific order only if I was making a certain recipe. Other than that, I'm just giving you the events as they appeared in order doesn't, doesn't mean anything in this case. So that's Luke. Right. So Luke is not concerned with order. He's concerned with content. Matthew is concerned with making sure we understand that the tempter came, did his, made his attempts, and then Jesus dismissed him. That's was that? It's awesome that we have both of those to corroborate, which is your point of you know multiple witnesses will give us multiple perspectives, and that is what this whole discussion about potential contradictions is about. So we've given the order based on simple scriptural reasoning. So observing the language that one gospel or another uses in any event is a huge step in finding true meaning. What about Peter becoming a follower? Why are there three different stories on how he was called? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. The Apostle Peter is pivotal. He became the spokesman and leader of the Twelve Apostles. Here the critics are right to a degree as there are three different stories from three of the Gospels regarding Peter becoming a follower. The key here is being open to the profound lessons of these three stories. Rick and Julie, this is a hard one to explain, and its answer many are not aware of. I'm excited about this one. Our question which story is correct regarding the calling of Simon Peter to follow Jesus? Now, Mark says in Mark 1, 16 to 17, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, I will make you and become fishers of men. But Luke says, now Jesus got into Simon Peter's boat taught and then went out fishing and caught many fish. He then had a conversation with Peter and then said in Luke 5, 10, and Jesus said to Simon, do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, John says, and Andrew uh, was the brother of Simon. Uh, he says to Jesus in John 1, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. So those are the three. So, Rick and Julie, you got some splaining to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know, and, and here, here's the answer, Jonathan. The answer is really, really simple. All three are 100% correct. All three are. They are, in fact, three different encounters between Jesus and Peter. And that's the part that I think so many of us miss. So, Julie, our contradiction principle for being able to explain through this. 
Always seek the larger context beyond any single account. And remember, various perspectives enhance true understanding. So, Rick, has anyone ever put all these Gospels in chronological order so that we can read them all as one story? I know some in some podcasts, you've done that. When you've quoted full paragraphs, you'll kind of take them all in so you get the full detail of it. But maybe we need to look at that because that may be helpful. Well, you know, and, and I, I really, um, that's kind of a pet project of mine. There are pieces of the Gospels that it really are difficult to tell what happened first, uh, between the Gospels on several parts of Jesus' life. So there's always going to be some debate about different details. But for the most part, you can actually put things in order. And when we put these experiences in order, it really gives us something to work with. So let's look at this in order. And this is in the order that they occurred. And, you know, John chapter 1 has been kind of a theme in this particular podcast throughout. And it's no, there's no accident here because John 1 and two and three, cover a lot of Jesus' early life. Simon's, he became Peter, his first encounter with Jesus was recorded in John chapter 1. It was sometime after Jesus came back from his 40-day experience. We don't know how long after, we know it was after that. So Jonathan, let's go through John 1, verses 35 to 37, and then let's go to verses 40 to 42. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. One of them, of the two, who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Okay, so what you have here is Andrew. Now, Andrew was, and we didn't go into this in the, in the context here, but he was previously a follower of John. He was following John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist, Julie, you described how John turned the spotlight. When he turns the spotlight to Jesus, Andrew turns his attention and follows the spotlight. You can tell that Simon's family had a heart for God. Okay, his brother Andrew was following John the Baptist, and he grabbed hold of of following Jesus. So Simon is brought to Jesus by Andrew. So Jonathan, what's, what's the message here from Jesus? Simon's family had a heart for God. His brother Andrew was following John the Baptist, as you mentioned. Right, next point, though. What's the next one? Je- Jesus' message to Simon, I know who you are and who you can become. He says to Simon, you are Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas. He's telling him, he just meets the guy, and he's telling him, you're, you're gonna, I'm going to change your name. Now, we've been talking about names. It's important to realize that Cephas means a small stone, and because he, he's showing that he is going to be solid and humble in the service of Jesus. So Jesus is prophesying about him. But what didn't Jesus do here, Jonathan? Jesus did not invite Simon to follow him. He simply saw him for what he could be. So this was not an invitation saying, hey, come follow me. There's no words to that that degree. He just simply says, I see you. I see who you are, and I see who you can become. That's the first meeting between John, or I'm sorry, between Jesus and the apostle who and um, um, 
Simon, who becomes the Apostle Peter. Simon's second recorded interchange with Jesus is at least six months after Jesus' baptism. So it's probably a couple of months after the baptism they met the first time. Many months go by, and they meet again. And this is Mark chapter 1. And Julie, you remember, in ver- you were saying that verse 13 and verse 14, you had to separate out. Right. So we've got v- Mark 1, 14 to 18, is the second time that Simon Peter and Jesus meet. Go ahead, Jonathan. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So, you know, you you look at that account and you say, gee, how did Jesus know who they were? Because they met before. You know, so it says as he was going along and he saw Simon and Andrew, he says, those are the two I was looking for. Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. So, Jonathan, let's get three basic quick points here to go through. Well, Jesus returns to Galilee, no formal following yet in place. He's working on it. He's developing it. There are people that are following him, but he is now beginning this process of really, really calling. What's next? Here, Jesus preaches in earnest the necessary repentance and belief for the kingdom. And so, and it's interesting, Seeker Rewind, the the bonus material, has a little bit extra on this, what he says, the time was fulfilled, why he says that, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And this is right after John is taken into custody, and Jesus is essentially repeating the words that John would say to take on John's ministry and do it in his way. What's Jesus' message here to Simon? Jesus' message was, I know you, follow me for true satisfaction. He's a fisherman. That's what he does. That's what he, he, he's, that's his livelihood. And as a fisherman, you have a good catch and you have a satisfied day. Jesus looks at him saying, he sees that they're fishermen. He says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to give you satisfaction beyond anything you can imagine. And so it says immediately they left their nets and followed him. So here's the question. Was this the moment when Peter truly follows Jesus? Was it? I, I, I would have said yes if I didn't know that there was this third thing coming up in Luke. Okay, and it, look, and it certainly looks like you got him. Yeah. And so Peter does follow him. But as, and, and you know, there's a period of time in, until this third uh, interchange with Jesus, Simon's third interchange. And it, apparently what happens is he followed him, but then he went back to fishing because he had responsibilities and so forth. So you have the following and then the kind of, well, you know what? I love this, but I've, I've got to, I got to work. And so here's what happens in the third recorded interchange with Jesus. Now, this is a much more detailed account. So we're just going to kind of sum it up to get through it more quickly. Um, but, you know, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says these three um, uh, interchanges were all distinct and progressive. So, so Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown is giving us a sense of, you know, there's a progress. There's, there's something distinct happening here. So some of this we're going to read from Scripture, Jonathan, and some of this we're going to uh, sort of sum up. Uh, 
So um, let me sum up Luke 5, 1 to 3. Jonathan, you'll read Luke 5, 4. Then, Julie, you can sum up Luke 5, 5 to 7. Luke 5, 1 to 3, Jesus is back in Galilee. He sees Peter's boat and asks to get in to put offshore so he can teach. So he's in Peter's boat with Peter and probably others, and he's teaching. Luke 5, 4, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Okay, so he finished teaching, let down your nets for a catch. So in Luke 5, 5 to 7, Julie, what, what, happens, what happens next? Well, Peter complies, even though they had worked all night and they'd caught nothing. But it ends up they catch so many fish that the nets break and they need to get help from their fishing partners. So they're giving, having this incredible catch that they didn't expect because they spent all day or all night, the previous night, working to no avail. Jesus says, go out, and Simon Peter listens. The catch is unbelievably large. So next, we see Simon Peter witnessing all of this. Now remember, this is his third very personal interchange with Jesus. So the exchange that finally gets Peter to fully commit is what happens next. Luke chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For amazement he seized him and all his companions because of the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, for now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So this is that third interchange, and Simon Peter gives up fishing and goes and follows Jesus on a permanent basis. That is until Jesus is crucified, and then he went back to fishing, but that's another story for another day. But here's what we have. We have this process that drew Simon to become, learn how to become introduced to becoming Peter. It's a process. So when people say, when the critics say, well, look, you've got these three different stories that tell you three different things, which one is right? The answer is, and Jonathan, you said it before, profoundly, they're all right. And, and amazingly, well, not amazingly, expectedly, they teach us a tremendous lesson of Jesus slowly drawing that character of Simon Peter to his side. It is a marvelous, marvelous lesson. Jesus' Jesus' message to Simon here is, look, I know you. I know you're willing to follow, even as your own sins seem overwhelming and unconquerable, because Simon says to him, go away from me, Lord. It's like, why would you say that to Jesus? Because he's being drawn to something that scares him to death. It's so big and so powerful, and he's just afraid. And he's, he's, he's being drawn in by Jesus, by the perfection, by the clarity, by the godliness, and he can't resist. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I've got you in this. You will be fishers of men. Julie, go ahead. And, and think about how profound that turned out to be. Peter caught billions of fish. Because because of his purpose in the gospel and spreading the message, you and I are those fish 
that, that he fished for because he has a legacy and we learn from him and we identify with him and, and all the, the, the mistakes that Peter made. Um, that's just like us. We make mistakes. And I, you, you know, you, you had done a three part episode all on the life of Peter called what can we learn from Peter parts one, two, and three. I, I urge the listeners to go to christianquestions.com and look up just 710, episode 710. Just put that in the search bar. That'll take you to part one. You will learn things about Peter that you never even imagined and, and how similar he is to many of us. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a beautiful, beautiful, profound story. Jonathan, go ahead. And this also gives us heart to say, hey, Andrew was, when he was called, he was there in an instant. Other personalities and, and types will take time methodically to make sure that they're getting the call right before they make that commitment to, to serve the Lord. So this is a beautiful example to all Christians that we're all unique and different, and that's okay. It is. It is an incredible example. And so rather than being a contradiction, it is a clarity of how Jesus works. It's just simply three different stories. So in, in today's podcast, we went through uh, Jesus' name, his ministry beginning, the temptations. Was it 40 days or not? Of course it was. The order of the temptations in the wilderness and drawing Peter. And what we found is complete, absolute harmony. Julie, any final thoughts as we wrap this up? Well, you know, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that the Bible contains layers and layers of treasures to find. And the Bible presents uncanny harmony with God's plan and his attributes of justice, love, wisdom, and power all balanced together. And if something doesn't seem to square up, keep searching with faith and humility. Absolutely. So, you know, folks, as, as, we, as we wrap this up, really, we want to understand that when we talk about these contradictions, supposed contradictions, our whole objective is to not go jumping out at and attacking those who, contra who say the Bible contradicts itself. Rather, the, our approach is to explain Scripture piece by piece, element by element, gospel by gospel, account by account, so that we can see that if we're careful, these things work together. That is how the inspired Word of God actually works. It's a puzzle. It fits. It's not meant to be understood easily. It's meant to be understood with study, prayer, and meditation. Let's not forget the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Word of God. Does Jesus' life contradict itself? No. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We'd greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, not a contradictions episode, but how do we deal with toxic people in our lives? You don't want to miss that. Talk to you next week.